0: Welcome to the fifth episode of Destination Unknown, a podcast that bridges the gap between what we're all told about future careers and what that life is really like, one story at a time. My name is Lorna Greville and today's guest is Matthew Swain, a doctor working in the NHS. You might be thinking it's ideal time to talk to a doctor while we're in the middle of another wave of COVID cases here in the UK, but we don't talk about COVID at all. We talk about what it's like to be a doctor and what it takes to get there. And as you'll hear, it's a very long path. Unlike some of the other careers we've encountered over the last few weeks, doctors and medicine are very much in the public eye. So today is less about showcasing a career you hadn't considered and more an opportunity for you to understand the process to get there. Medicine, you might not be surprised to learn, is the most searchable degree in the UK. And medicine is still considered the most competitive course in the UK to get into. Let me just put some numbers to that for you. In 2021, for every 10 applications, only two students were even given an offer to study medicine. And for every 10 applications, only one student was able to enrol. It's so difficult to get in that this year, more than 15% of applications came from students who'd applied before, but hadn't got in either first or second time around. And despite large increases in applications over the pandemic, there is still a huge shortage of staff in the NHS. As of December 2021, while I'm speaking right now, the NHS currently has a deficit of 49,000 doctors, and there are over 39,000 advertised vacancies for nursing. Students know all this. They're entering into this training, knowing they'll be working for the NHS, which is, paradoxically, one of the crowning glories of the UK if you talk to any Brit, and yet also under constant attack through both the media and government budget cuts. The pandemic may conveniently lay a plaster over some of the critique of critical underfunding and under-resourcing as they beg for staff to come out of retirement. But as you know, it's a difficult state of affairs. This conversation with Matt was at the end of a difficult week for him. Two of his patients that he'd referred on for further treatment had both had an upsetting prognosis that may not see them survive to see 2022. And a new patient who'd just moved to the UK from overseas had incredibly complex mental health needs, came in for a 45-minute consultation when normally they're just 10 minutes, and Matt just knew how long the wait lists were for the proper treatment this young person might need. I say all this because the conversation with Matt is interesting and enlightening about what it takes to become a doctor, but don't expect to come out of this with roast into spectacles. All of that's to say, I really hope you enjoy this journey into Destination Unknown, and I'll see you on the other side.
1: My name is Matthew. I am a general practitioner in the NHS, and I am 31 and I live in Surrey
0: welcome thank you so much for joining us today for destination unknown you told us that you're a general practitioner the first question that we normally ask as part of destination unknown is what you wanted to be when you were you know before 10 years old when you were a real a little kid what what's the first thing you remember wanting to be when you grew up
1: i think the first thing i wanted to be when i grew up was something like an engineer
0: you knew what an engineer was at that age mm-hmm. what, what what attracted you to wanted to be an engineer?
1: I liked mechanical things and trains in particular and I thought that engineers were probably something different to what they actually are at the time and so yeah I wanted to do something like that.
0: So you wanted to work with trains?
1: Uh, yeah probably.
0: And, and, and you don't really work with trains anymore?
1: I don't work with trains no.
0: So can you remember what age you were when you realised that's what you wanted to do and kind of how you started that journey?
1: Uh, Yeah, I decided I wanted to be a doctor around the age of thirteen. I think that I still was thinking about being an engineer, and I was thinking about being a lawyer, and then I was thinking about being a doctor. Uh, I enjoyed biology at school and had an aptitude for science, uh, but probably one of the underlying things was being taken seriously. So I was I was looking for a career that there was sort of no doubt over that and. I wasn't very imaginative
0: <laughs> so kind of looking at jobs that were really visible in the public eye yeah yeah train drivers lawyers doctors
1: yeah I mean I think put train drivers to one side I think lawyers and the doctors yeah, yeah yeah
0: and so what what made you then land on medicine
1: It just seemed quite unequivocal that doctors were respected members of society and like I said I, I liked biology and science and uh, law didn't necessarily fit in with that educationally, and mm-hmm. so I felt that something which was science-based was going to be more my speed.
0: Is that, And that's what you chose to study for GCSEs and A-levels?
1: Yeah, so I geared my studies towards that. I focus on triple science, and I didn't really care too much about what the other subjects were.
0: But you did pretty well.
1: I did okay. I could have done better if I'd tried I think
0: okay okay um let's I think you know thinking about qualifications then let's talk a little bit more about the training and education you need to become a doctor Mm. I think perhaps unlike many other careers it's much more linear it's quite clear early on that you'll need to do a lot of education and training and there is a specific path Um, but for people listening that might not be you know, the, the details and the nuances of that might not be super clear. So you knew at 13 you wanted to be a doctor and you chose triple science to start that path. But what happened after that? And can you kind of talk through that education experience up until until now?
1: Yeah, so I think that uh, when you decide that you want to be a doctor, you sort of need to set yourself up uh, in such a way that you're doing the right things at the right time. Because if you're not, if you if you commit too late to that process, then maybe they'll end up being... A delay in when in the time that you can enter the university and I was always in a rush so I uh, set myself up so that I was doing the correct subjects at GCSE and then on it onto A-level but it was also about um, obtaining work experience relevant work experience uh, to put on your personal statement to go to university and <clears throat> reading the right magazine so I had to organized myself a publication to the British Medical Journal to say that I was reading that. And I went to uh, weekend conferences that were specially designed for prospective medical students, which I think retrospectively had a bit of a money spinning exercise. But, you know, you could put it on your statement that you've, that you've been there. So um, you, you narrow yourself down quite quickly. And I think linear is a, is a good way of putting it. It's, it's hard to, to deviate
0: reflecting on some other conversations I've had about about career paths, university really opens up the doors in lots of ways. You know, I chose literature which has no real path. We've spoken to um, other guests who'd done, you know, philosophy and music, which really is incredibly open. And like you said, it, it's narrowing it's narrowing down very, very early. Mm. And kind of immersing yourself in a medical world before you even at, at university, going to those weekends away, doing work experience. Mm. Um I want to talk a lot about medical school because I think it is very different to other experiences. But can we actually just talk about the work experience? What, what was that work experience? How did you organise it? What was your experience? What do you remember feeling?
1: Uh, so uh, the work experience were, felt like a, a struggle, felt like quite an insurmountable challenge at the time because um, so certainly to me it didn't appear that we knew anybody in the family that would be able to help. And I think it is a case of, of knowing somebody. Eventually, I think after asking dad several times, there was uh, somebody that grew up in the same village as him that had become a doctor. And I don't think he'd spoken to him for probably a couple of decades, but I made him ring him up and and ask for me. So, yeah, so his name was Tim Winch and he was a GP um, about 45 minutes away from where I was living at the time. And he was very grateful. I was very grateful to him. He had me at his GP practice for a week. Uh, which I had to do during my half term which I was quite miffed about Um, but yeah I went and sat in with him and he then was able to help me get into a hospital to do some work experience in a hospital and I worked with an orthopaedic surgeon just shadowing and watching what was going on for for a further week as well.
0: So you mentioned that it felt like an insurmountable task just to get the work experience and it sounds like you know you had you had some help there which is great and great to have family friends from a long way back that that could help. What What was the experience like being in the practice and being with an orthopaedic surgeon?
1: Uh, so the practice was very welcoming and um, it, he was he was very casual and laid back, and so I felt that way as well. And I got to go to the lunchtime meetings with them, and I was amazed when this pharmaceutical rep turned up with loads of lunch. And I just gorge myself in a corner whilst they were chatted about something that was completely over my head. I think that um, working with the orthopaedic surgeon was a bit more scary and a bit more intimidating, that hospital experience. You know, it's a big place for a teenager to go, whereas the general practice felt a bit more uh, welcoming.
0: I guess GPs are quite familiar. If all of us have been to a GP. Mm-hmm. What is a, an orthopaedic surgeon?
1: So an orthopaedic surgeon is a type of doctor who specialises in bones and joints. And uh, typically, they would perform procedures, which are corrective to help a a problem with that that bone or
0: that joint. Very, very specific. Interesting. Um, So so your experience then was really young, you were a teenager where you were in a hospital, a teenager in a GP practice, seeing what that was like. Was there anything that went through your mind that Thought that put you off or were you actually more enticed by the experience did it re your wish to study medicine uh
1: i think that it felt scary and it felt intimidating but i wasn't going to be perturbed by it i think that probably what it did was um point me towards general practice from quite early on in terms of i went into university thinking i'll probably be a gp so uh yeah, I think that that, that, was, that was affirming in one way and made me realise, or, or, or sort of made me, gave me a bit of apprehension about hospitals.
0: Okay. Uh, let's come back to the apprehension about hospitals because you spent a lot of time in hospitals since you graduated from medical school. Um, but let's, let's go back to applying. So, you did all of these things you did work experience with two different places, you went on these weekend courses, you subscribed to magazines, all for your application. What's the process for applying to medical school?
1: So, obviously, this was a few years ago now, so I imagine it may have changed. But um, at the time, I think you were able to apply to five universities. For medical school, you're only allowed to uh, apply to four out of your five slots. And so what would commonly be the case is that you'd pick a backup subject at a university that you felt you were quite sure that you'd get into. And typically it would just be some sort of generic biomedical science degree for which you can then enter medicine through a graduate pathway or maybe go into like an allied profession. So I think that probably a lot of people who go and do biomedical sciences end up as pharmacists or biochemists, things like that. So uh, yeah, I think that it was a case of ordering lots of prospectuses and just applying to ones where I felt I had a good chance of getting in. I I wanted to just maximise my my chances rather than pick places that I really wanted to go. I really wanted to apply to London, partly because I just liked the idea of being in London, partly because it was closer to to where I grew up. But I, yeah, I, I was sort of convinced otherwise that I should apply elsewhere. So I think I applied to Manchester, to Bristol, which was Probably a bit of a long shot, and then I applied to two of the newer medical schools, um, which had opened just about five years earlier: uh, the Hull York Medical School and Peninsula Medical School, which I believe no longer exists.
0: What, where, where was Peninsula?
1: Peninsula was a joint project between the University of Exeter and the University of Plymouth, and I believe that it's split into two
0: now. As Exeter and Plymouth. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't. I didn't realise that that was mm. a joint venture.
1: Yeah. So yeah.
0: So, and so you chose not to apply to London in the end at all? No. Again, perhaps differently to most, most degrees or most applications, there's also quite a lengthy interview process. Yeah. And, and so you applied to those four? Mm-hmm. And, and then what happened next?
1: So I got uh, interviews trickled through. I got an interview at Manchester, Holy York Medical School and Peninsula. I, I, I didn't hear back from Bristol. Uh, Manchester was the first and,
0: and these are all a long way from where you grew yeah, up yeah. In, the, in the corner of the UK. Yeah, and
1: so I grew up in Kent, yeah. So, you know, we'd done some interview prep at school and we had an external company come in and, and do that. But I was, I was extremely out of my, my comfort zone. And I think the one at Manchester was the worst, which was the first one. It was a long, it was a long train journey up with my mum and i don't think i probably spoke very much on the way up there and it was sort of a more of an in out process in comparison to some of the other stuff that i later did at the other medical schools uh where you just had a, an interview panel of about four four or five people in front of you and yeah it didn't go didn't go great uh i think in the end they i got put on a waiting list so i didn't get an acceptance but i i was sort of maybe the next camp off the rank
0: you were in a bit of a limbo land with Manchester. Yeah, yeah. And what about the other? What were the other experiences? You uh, kind of said that it was slightly different. So how yeah. So
1: I think that the ones in the the interviews in Hull York Medical School and the Peninsula Medical School, they're a bit more uh, rounded. So you went there. It was like a whole day thing, and you went there and you were shown around the campus by by somebody, and you had lots of talks from people, and then you had Interview process where you had to go and do a couple of things. I think I can't remember exactly, but it, it was a bit. It felt a bit more friendly. There were only two interviewers. And there was an article you had to read before you went in that you had to dis- discuss, uh, and that that was my best interview. That was where I eventually got an offer from. Um, but that one, yeah, that one went quite quite smoothly. But I think then I turned up to Peninsula knowing that I'd got a place and I was probably a bit sure of myself and probably undersolved myself because I just thought well I've already got a place I don't need to worry too much which is true but uh yeah I could have could have ended up with two offers but only only ended up with one.
0: So who took over um just for anyone that's interested in studying medicine what Matt's described there are two different types of interviews so one is um kind of more traditional with a panel and then the second is now referred to as a multiple mini interview or an MMI these are really common now across medicine there are very few medical stores that don't use an MMI and most vet schools will also use a multiple interview and that process normally is that you will have a kind of a one-on-one conversation or a two-on-one conversation but also then there's kind of stations where you'll do different tasks and you meet lots of different um, staff and lots of different staff are assessing you so that your the decision for your entry is not based on one person who might just be having a bad day um, and also are seen as a better assessment of a student's abilities. So it sounds like you had kind of a, a, an early experience of what has now become the norm.
1: Yeah, I think that, uh, like I referenced, the, those two medical schools were new and mm. doing things very differently to a lot of other traditional medical schools. But I think that probably the way that they, those courses are set up is becoming more normalized and widespread throughout the medical community.
0: Talk to me about what it felt like when you knew that you had an offer for medical school.
1: If, I can't really remember If I'm honest, Um, because it was a tough, it was a tough year that year, and it was just a a hurdle, like just what, just another hurdle, and it was all going to be meaningless if I didn't get the results. So, in a way, it put put a bit more pressure on me because I think if I hadn't got any places, then doesn't really matter, or it doesn't matter as much what you get. But uh, it was sort of within reach and you could only have it taken away. So I didn't feel elated or over the moon. It was just um, yeah, another hurdle and a, and a long slog, I think.
0: Like a low-level sense of relief?
1: Yeah, at least I got a place, yeah. yeah.
0: yeah. And what made it a tough year? Uh,
1: so I think going back to my comment about my GCSEs, I, I coasted through my GCSEs and I didn't really do much work for them and I got quite good grades, you know, I, but... I sort of decided that, wow, life was going to be really easy for me. I was just going to go through life and I didn't really have to put the work in. And I got found out when I did my AS levels. So after my AS levels, I asked my parents, I begged my parents to send me to a different school, which was a private school for a year, which specialised in retaking everything in a year. And they also had a lot of experience with sending people to medical schools. So... You know, a bit more nepotism uh, through my parents helping me out, and obviously things like getting the work experience. But um, I still think it's probably one of the hardest years of my life. Even twelve years on, it was it was it was very hard. Yeah,
0: I mean, doing t- to kind of explain that you're doing you're in all of your A levels, which are normally done over two years, in a single year, retaking those, applying for medical school, going to do all of the interviews. As well as all the other prep, so yeah, it certainly sounds like a very intense year. Not not only doing those two levels, but really trying to get the best possible grades to give you the best possible mm. chance of getting into medical school. So, it's I, quite I also a big had task. to I
1: also had to sit the UK CAT, which I think is important to mention. Um, I think that when I took it, it was still a bit experimental in terms of I don't think they uh, base a lot of decisions on it, but uh, it's it's the UK Clinical Aptitude Test. I really can't remember what it involves, but it, you know you had to study for that and, and do that test at extra cost to uh, apply to medical school as well.
0: It sounds like there's a lot of barriers to becoming a doctor more mm-hmm. more than others, not least financial. And you've talked about you know doing these weekends away, also having the connections, however however removed nebulous to to get. Um, the work experience, the cost of the uh, the ELNA, and and of course, you know, I think perhaps you're, um, you know, perhaps you'd have been absolutely fine and would have got to medical school anyway. But you know, have, kind of having the opportunity to go to another school, so it is very different to a normal degree. I think it's really worth and important to note that you are the first of your entire family to go to university, mm-hmm. um, and went straight through to pretty much the most difficult degree you can do. What was your parents' experience of that for you? And and how did they feel when you were offered a place? Uh,
1: I think that, um, again, I I, I don't really remember what it was like when I was offered a place. I think obviously they were pleased for me. I think their relief was more when I got the results and they knew that I'd be going. Mm -hmm. I think it's important that I never felt any pressure from my parents to go and do this. The pressure was all internal. I don't think they really not cared, but they didn't mind what I went to did. But they were very supportive in lots of ways that you probably don't appreciate at the time. But obviously financially uh, calling in favours and ferrying me back and forth to these interviews. So, yeah, uh, yeah, uh, I think that I think that some members of my family were quite happy to dine out on the fact that I was going to university and do medicals, go to medical school. But my parents never made me feel like that.
0: And I imagine they're enormously proud.
1: Yeah, yeah, so they say, yeah.
0: Still, Yeah. very much so. And I do think, and I think it's an enormous achievement to do it at all, let alone be, you know, not have parents, not have support of a family that understands that process and understands the value of it. So, you know, amazing that they were so proud of you and supported you so much to make that happen. I guess we're now kind of at the point at which you, you get your results and then you go off to medical school. And what age... Were you when you started medical school? I was 18. So just pretty much the English possible to, to start medical school?
1: Yeah, like I said earlier, I was, I'm i always in a rush to do things. I don't want to take a circuitous route and experience life. I just want to get to the end, really. So, yeah, I just went straight straight there.
0: Why do you think you're in a rush?
1: I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Um, no, I was just... I didn't, I didn't think that uh, going and do a gap year really was me. Um, I don't think that I like the idea of uh, going and doing another degree first. I think at the time I was very conscious of the fact that you'd have to fund the second degree yourself. So I just decided that it was best to just go off and do it.
0: Were you the only 18 year old? Was it common to be that young or do most people go a little bit later at 19 or 20? What's the kind of age group?
1: I, I think in medical school there's a fair mix. I think that there were plenty of 18 year olds. There were plenty of people that had had a year or two out um, either through choice or not getting the grades and having to reapply. And then there was a fair old chunk of people who'd done another degree and then come to medicine as a second degree, having teed themselves up, like I mentioned earlier. There are also a few mature students as well who are coming at it from a second career point of view.
0: Oh that's interesting that's interesting. Um, there is a qualification to help you get into medical school as a mature student um, which is similar to an access to HE course but is specific for medicine so yeah interesting to hear that that was the case then as well. Um, I really want to talk about medical school it's you know it's it, can you talk to us about the the time frame and the experience of being at medical school what's the, what's the teaching like what's the experience of being a student at medical school like?
1: So I think that, uh, like I said, Holyoke uh, uh, Medical School was a new uh, design of medical school, and we were the second generation of students. So we were the, we, we we were a year when their first graduates had had passed out through the medical school. So they called us the second generation. So it was a PBL thing, which is problem-based learning. So most traditional medical schools are didactic, so that means that the first two years are largely lecture based. Whereas we started clinical placements for the first year. Um, It was only half a day each week, but we were in hospital and that was uh, a big selling point that they made a big deal of. But rather than going to lots of lectures, uh, we would have sessions in groups a couple of times a week where the learning would be hung off of a clinical case. So a fictional person with a medical problem stimulated the learning objectives for the week. You would have to go away and do reading and research about them and then come back later to discuss it. There were supportive lectures, uh, but they were quite, minimal in comparison to um, other traditional medical schools where the majority of your week would be lecture based
0: Do you think that's a better route or better for you?
1: I don't really know because I haven't experienced it so I haven't uh, gone and done um, a didactic course Uh, I don't think it would have been great for me, I don't think that I could have sat there and absorbed the information properly but yeah, you, you just you just don't know till you try it, I suppose.
0: What was a what was a standard week like then? So you said you know you had half a day in clinical work, which I imagine would have been the second <laughs> semester, or straight from the first semester.
1: Second week, I think. Oh wow! Yeah,
0: that's that is quite intense. What was the rest of the week like then? So how did it, was it? You know, were you kind of learning twenty five hours during the week? Was it forty hours? Did it was it like a full time job? What's, yeah. What was yeah. the kind of study life balance?
1: Uh, Yeah, so I remember being quite resentful of uh, the people that I lived in halls with because they were doing non-medical degrees and uh, they didn't seem to have very many contact hours. But um, Monday morning would be lectures and then in the afternoon there would be your PBL session and then a clinical skills session. And then uh, Tuesday morning would be lectures and then in the afternoon, that was when you would go to hospital. Uh, there'd be sessions on a Wednesday morning and then a break for sport on a Wednesday, which I never did. Um, and then there'd be more uh, more lectures and sessions on, on Thursday and Friday. So um, there would be some time off, but I think that probably it was at least a 25, 30 hour week each week. Uh, and that's not including the learning that you had to do separately. For yourself.
0: To put that into context for listeners I did literature as you'll have heard in other episodes um, which was at the most eight hours of contact time a week and of course I was reading an awful lot but um, they say about medicine that it's you know all of the medical language it's like learning a second language so certainly there's a lot of learning alongside the 25 hours there it is it really is a heavy degree.
1: Yeah I'd spend most of my weekends uh in the library or um in my room doing research to be prepared for the sessions the next week yeah
0: very diligent compared to your perhaps your first year of a levels and your gcse's
1: yeah it fluctuated uh but um you had to put the hours in because it's uh you know it's a competitive degree as well you know even once you get there uh, there's a lot of pressure to match up to your to your peers and you don't want to be found out.
0: There's quite a lot of competition once you leave as well, but we'll come on to that later. Um, what's What's your best memory of medical school? What did you enjoy most about medical school?
1: Uh, I think probably the, the friendships that I made and the time that I spent with my... Uh, medical school friends and you know uh, in the first few years the people on on other degrees so yeah yeah
0: and what about the worst what was the worst most difficult part of medical school? Uh,
1: being away from home yeah I found it very difficult uh leaving home and um I think I think the the year that I spent trying to get into medical school meant that I really hadn't prepared myself to live by myself uh or just be able to be independent in that way. So, um, it was, it was a big, it was a big culture shock. And I think that it's probably something I never really got used to. Maybe in the last couple of years I I, I settled into it, but I was always happy to go home.
0: Yeah. And, and good long breaks that perhaps, meant again, doctors or doctors in training don't get the same very long breaks that the rest of us did. I would finish in May and go back in October.
1: Yeah. So I think even from the first year, all of our holidays were shorter in comparison, and unfortunately, they only got shorter each
0: year. So, yeah, and that is difficult, and I think that's a really common experience for for everybody to feel homesick and be surprised by their homesickness. That's a really normal response, I think, to moving so far away from home, in particular. Let's um let's run forwards and think about uh, so you graduated, and again the process of the next step is really quite linear in comparison to what another graduate might have from another degree. So what happens once you graduate? Uh,
1: So in your fifth year, uh, about November, December time, you have to start applying for your foundation jobs. So like you say, it's very linear. Um, Once you come out of medical school, you're technically a doctor, but you're not registered. You're a pre-registration doctor. So you have more hoops to jump through in order to get your your full registration. And the way that it's done in the UK is that you spend uh, two years as a foundation doctor. So because you need doctors everywhere in the country, they have to make sure that they send doctors to all the places. And so therefore you have to rank where you would like to go uh, divided by geographical areas. And then within the medical school, you get a ranking uh, in terms of deciles, uh, depending on your performance in medical school, and then I was the first year that did this, but we had to sit a test called the situational judgment test, which um, is still a bit of a ridiculous test, but it would uh, it's about your aptitude and your professionalism and ability to deal with situations that you might come across as a junior doctor, uh, such as your consultant comes in smelling of alcohol. What do you do? Rank these answers in the most appropriate order, and and things like that. So, uh, I didn't do very well in either my decile nor my situational judgment test. So, I uh, I wanted to come back down south, and I ended up being placed uh, still in Yorkshire. So, uh, I yeah I was going to spend the the next two years in in Yorkshire as well.
0: It could have been worse. You could have been even further away from home.
1: Yeah, I could have. Um, you know, you could go somewhere that you've never been before, that you have no contacts or, or, or support network. And I think that um, the most capable and able doctors that perform the best get to go where they want to go. And often uh, it leaves... Less capable doctors that get sent to areas of need, which are probably already struggling, so it, it compounds some problems which perhaps already exist.
0: I have a very big issue with with this specifically, particularly in relation to the types of people that are choosing to do medicine. Um, that if you are very very successful and have done the best grades, like probably that means you have a very supportive system in place, like emotional system. Perhaps you also have, um, you know, more financial security. And these are generalizations, but the people that are most well adjusted get to go where they want to go. And the people that perhaps need more support are placed in places where they have less support. And that feels to me, you know, not, that does not seem to be setting people up for success. And putting people into a job that is already very stressful and making it more stressful. I don't know whether you would agree with that.
1: Uh, uh, yeah, I, I do. I do agree. I think that um, probably in my situation, uh, remaining in Yorkshire and eventually being placed in York where I've been living was not a bad outcome because at least I knew the hospital and I knew some of the doctors and the consultants that I'd be working with. So. Uh I think that having the thought of having to go somewhere like a new town or a new city as well would have been uh quite overwhelming. So that was uh an okay outcome in the in the grand scheme of things, yeah.
0: And what does it what, what does it mean to be a foundation, Doctor? You've explained that you have to do a foundation. What happens during your two foundation years? As yeah, what's the from your first few weeks?
1: So Uh, During the two foundation years you'll do four monthly rotations. In the first year you have to do a medical job, a surgical job and then something else which can be another medical surgical job uh, or a different speciality Um, but you you have to do those. So my first job uh, was an odd one, it was split between um, half gastroenterology and half uh, geriatrics. So I started on the gastroenterology ward, which was uh, a baptism of fire. You know, it was probably one of the busiest medical specialities with the most patients. And there are a few rotor gaps as well. So, um, you know, I had uh, 60 patients on my handover list every day and trying to get a handle on what needs to be done, uh, let alone when somebody came unwell or uh, you couldn't take a blood test or you couldn't get a cannula in. Um, it was it was a it was a hard job. The geriatrics one was a bit more straightforward for me. You just have one ward that you looked after, but again there was a rotor gap, so I didn't have any uh, support from junior doctors. I just it was just me and the consultant really. Um, so yeah, that was uh, that that was difficult. I then spent four months uh, doing anaesthetics, which I really loved. Uh, it was really good fun and. Um, it was very nice because in anesthetics you 're what 's called supernumerary, so you're you don 't know enough to do anything by yourself, so uh, you always have somebody with you, and it was very uh, very enjoyable to have such one on one teaching uh, from from consultants and registrars that led me to feel a lot uh, or like gain a lot of helpful skills um, and feel more confident in myself at that time, yeah. And then I did a urology job for the last four months, um, which was okay as well. I think, you know, as well as doing all these day to day stuff, you had to uh, learn how to deal with doing on calls. So in York, we were lucky that as an F1, you didn't have to do night shifts, um, but you did, you were um, on call in the evenings quite regularly for either medicine or surgery. And you'd have to do do weekends as well covering the wards and um yeah, just some of the busiest uh shifts of your of your life really,
0: yeah, especially if you don't stay then in in that practice, you know you've obviously chosen not to be in hospital, but perhaps if you'd stay in hospitals you'd still have some crazy busy shifts,
1: yeah, yeah, I think that uh am I allowed to swear. Yep. Shit runs downhill and um, a lot of uh, the brunt work gets put on the F1s. You know, I don't think you're making the serious decisions that some of the more senior doctors do, but uh, the lists would be long and the nurses would be bleeping you incessantly and they didn't really care if you were busy doing somewhere else. They, they'd keep bleeping you and the, the lists would just go on and on and on. So, yeah, I was always very happy to finish those shifts. They were, they were knackering.
0: Absolutely, and your second year of foundation.
1: Yeah, so uh, I had to go to Scarborough. So, um, I was still living in York, and I had to make the decision about whether I was going to go and live in Scarborough, uh, which I decided against because I just I I really didn't having having spent some time there when I was in medical school. I really didn't like it very much as a place, and so. Uh, it, yeah, it felt like the right decision at the time to, to stay living in York, but um, it was about an hour and a half each way. So uh, that did take off a lot of my time. I put uh, did a lot of miles in the car. I worked in A&E as my first job as an F2. And uh, again, that was pretty stressful, pretty yeah. horrendous. Um, it was a speciality I enjoyed. I, I quite like um, acute medical presentations but the rotor is just
0: for the layman in the room what what do you mean by acute medical presentations
1: oh sorry um <laughs> I, I like people who present with a new medical problem you know they're unwell and uh it needs dealing with there and then um rather than you know some in general practice dealing with something that's been a problem for years and years you know a and e's for accidents and emergencies or people who are unwell there and then and i i I do i still quite like that so yeah yeah um yeah i think i think the hard part was that they have you for four months and they just use and abuse you on the rotor uh it was the shift pattern was you do you you'd work for 12 days in a row and then you'd have two days off and uh that just repeated for four months uh the
0: 12 days were
1: not nine to five no so some of them would be nine to five but some of them would be night shifts some of them would be five in the afternoon till three in the morning some of them would be uh midday till nine o'clock in the evening uh and you just swap between all these things um and yeah it, it, it almost it almost finished me it was it was uh it was very hard four months doing that i think scarborough was a very under-resourced, underfunded A&E department as well, and it served a large, a large, deprived community. So uh, there were lots of things that are tough about that that job.
0: I think probably taught you an awful lot at the same time.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah. I think that I became a better doctor through necessity because there wasn't a lot of support that I trusted they didn't feel like there were a lot of people that I could ask and get the answers that I needed so I had to become more independent and capable in that regard so uh, I think that I am the doctor that I am today through those experiences Um, Yeah.
0: Mm. and I, I remember you doing that and it was probably the most among the most miserable you've ever been and picking you up after a night shift, um, to you being ashen faced and seeing the patients, uh, there as well was very alarming and moving at the same time. It definitely was a, a kind of, as a partner of a doctor, it was a strange experience to see you in that zone, which where I felt very vulnerable and you were not the vulnerable person, you were the person in control. Um, so a, a strange and difficult experience, I think. During F two, the other thing that you're doing is planning your exit move. Like what happens after mm. F two? So what what's that like?
1: Yeah, so uh, it really is a conveyor belt medicine. You know, from the time you decide you're going to do it, there's uh, it just it just keeps going. It really does. You can jump off if you want, but again, I don't like jumping off. I just want to get to the end. So. Uh, I think that you know through. I had a bit of a wobble about what I wanted to do long term. I was still thinking I wanted to do general practice. I definitely liked the thought of doing anaesthetics, uh, but I looked into the exams and the hoops had to jump through for that, and I was very scared of that. Uh, you know, they're they're not straightforward exams. They're they're very difficult, and even just to get onto the training program, probably you needed to have started putting together your CV long before. So uh, I wavered, but I, I decided to stick with general practice, um, which is a shorter training programme and less hoops to jump through. Exams are still difficult, but they're not difficult on on, on that level. So, uh, there's not quite so many of them. There's not so so many of them, no. Uh, so I had to apply to... A GP training scheme and I chose that I wanted to come back down south and uh, again that was more that was again one of those multi something interview processes uh, a lot more holistic with uh, exercises about prioritization of tasks uh, interviewing actors pretending to be patients things like that so uh, Anna uh, and an exam as well, that I had to sit before before that. Um, but that, that that went quite well, and I got into the location that I wanted to work in, and so that's when we moved down to Red Hill in Surrey.
0: So just to go, just to explain that again, so you apply to university at 17, mm-hmm. or perhaps older, and you're, you're ranked then, and you go through interview process to get into medical school. Mm-hmm. When you leave medical school, you do absolutely loads of extra exams you're ranked by your within your university and then ranked nationally and then you're placed there and then once you want to get onto a training program once again you're ranked and you may or may not end up in the location or on the training scheme that you that you want yeah so it's a you know you described it as a conveyor belt but it's also just mountain after mountain after mountain you feel perhaps you've reached a peak and actually then you're ranked again Mm -hmm. it sounds quite gruelling
1: yeah it is It is, and I think that it's hard when uh, you leave secondary school as one of the top dogs where you're a high achiever even if you don't try hard um, necessarily but you're capable of achieving uh, well and then you go to this place where you're no longer special you're no longer one of the elite you're just well as it turns out in the bottom half of the pack and that's something to get your head round, um and a, a challenge that for sure uh and then yeah being constantly compared to your peers and then not necessarily coming up smelling of roses is is hard
0: i think it's a difficult thing for anyone that has been the best and in one part of life and perhaps is not elsewhere You know, what kind of skills are most important to be successful as a doctor? Uh,
1: I think that medicine is about problem solving. I think that you have to be inquisitive. And I think that you have to like being challenged intellectually. Uh, I think that that's really important through all the learning that you do and the difficult cases that you come across. I think as a junior doctor... It's more about organisational skills and being able to manage tasks and prioritise appropriately. Dealing with pressure, whether that's at university or whether that's lots of sick patients that all need to be seen at the same time or going to a crash call or something like that. There's lots of, there's lots of pressure, so I think you need to be able to deal with that as well.
0: Quite a few pretty important skills to be a successful doctor
1: yeah and i'm sure there's probably lots i've missed out but those are the ones that jumped to my mind yeah are
0: there things that you wish doctors generally did more of
1: uh i think that medicine is adversarial from the moment you get to university even to like going to work yesterday you know medicine is adversarial and i think that I think probably you can understand it when you're at university because you're all competing for the the high ground, but when you qualify and everybody goes to work with the intention of helping patients, when you're speaking to other doctors and you're trying to obtain their help or their assistance or you're trying to refer a patient to them, perhaps as a result of the system, but people put barriers in place and make it a challenge. Mm. And I think that a more collegiate environment would would be would be beneficial, yeah.
0: Can you explain a little more? What do you mean by adversarial?
1: So I think the example that I always remember is when you're in AE, nobody likes AE throughout the rest of the hospital because AE creates work for everybody else. Because in AE there's only a few outcomes in terms of what happens. Like obviously some people are seen and treated and they leave, but when you see a patient in A&E the first thing you're thinking about is is this person being admitted or is this person going home when you have to admit them you have to convince the admitting medical team or surgical team that that patient does need admitting and they need to come under their care those teams are already stressed out because they've got a lot of work to do and i'm ringing up asking them to do more work so often what it becomes is an exercise in them trying to poke holes in the story that you're telling them and find reasons why they don't need to be admitted. And sometimes they're right, sometimes they're wrong. You know, sometimes you're trying to get somebody in because you're, you can't make up in your mind whether they need to be admitted or sent home. And the safest thing to do is admit them. But at the end of the day, you're still trying to do what you feel is in the best interests of the patient. And I think that when they get to the admitting team, they're trying to do what's in their best interests for the, for the patient. But at that moment in time, they're trying to save themselves some work. And so it becomes quite adversarial. And mm. I, yeah, I remember each time I had to phone a doctor to refer a patient, I had to G myself up and rehearse what I was going to say. And uh, yeah, I used to be very nervous about it. So if I could get rid of that, that would be... A, a step forward, I think.
0: It sounds hugely challenging, and I think it perhaps goes back to what you were saying in terms of the, the first big skill that people need is to be able to problem solve.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think that, uh, especially when you're working in A and E as well, where over the months that you're working there, you become familiar with each other. Your reputation precedes you, and if you're seen as somebody who sends specialities, duff patients. Then you get asked a few more hard questions when you ring them up next time. But if you're seen as somebody who's reliable and is sending through reasonable stuff, then your life becomes a bit easier. But yeah, yeah.
0: perhaps like all careers, then your reputation's really, really key. Moving on slightly, what do you feel is the biggest lesson you've learnt since leaving medical school?
1: Hmm uh that i can't fix everything yeah yeah i think that um i think you go into it thinking that there's an answer and there's there's a there's a fix there's a cure and uh, certainly when you come across the general public it feels like that's their perception but uh sometimes sometimes diagnosing something or telling somebody what it is that's the end of the line uh you know this is what you've got there's not anything we can do about it so uh accepting that is catharsis in a way Mm -hmm. uh, because sometimes it it takes the the pressure off i think if you go into the job thinking that you do have to fix everything then um you're you're doomed doomed to fail Mm -hmm. uh it doesn't make it any easier when you have to tell somebody that that's not going to get better but um, I think I find it a lot harder if I if I did still believe that I've got to correct every everything
0: mm-hmm. that is I think perhaps also how many people feel in all their careers wanting to do everything and that is just not not reasonable and not feasible what drives you then you No, know, that's that's a big lesson to learn but what what's your drive what motivates you
1: Probably not the things that I should say, <laughs> or but you know, for any other things that I that you you want a doctor to say. I think that um, what what drives me is uh, providing for myself and my family and uh, living a comfortable and enjoyable life. That that's what that's what drives me. You know, I, I think that professionally, I want to be known as somebody who is competent, a safe pair of hands. Uh, somebody that is respected, but you know, I think that the the highs and the lows of the job, the highs aren't high enough to account to to, to counteract the lows. So it, that that's not necessarily what what drives me on in, in my work.
0: The next question, really, then, it kind of it again relates to this. But what is your work life balance like?
1: Uh, so I think that it's quite good. I think that lots of people around me think it's quite good and I lead leave quite a charm life. Uh, so the way that you're hired as a general practitioner is that you are hired on a sessional basis. So one session is essentially half a day uh, and a full-time GP will typically work eight to nine sessions a week. So four, four and a half days. Where I work full-time is, is four days. So, I work. Uh, I work seven sessions a week, so I work three and a half days. But I also do a lot of weekend work through my own choice. Uh, so others might disagree, but I probably say, based on the amount of weekend work I do, I, I work full time equivalent of what a full time doctor in my practice works.
0: Mm-hmm. And what do you do with your? what kind of balance. what how does that support and feed your
1: life yeah so i think that for me uh leaving work and being able to leave that part of me separate and aside is is vital and so you know i have half i have i work half the week i have half the week off and uh i'm able to just step away from medicine and not be a doctor and just do do the things that I need to do to decompress and relax.
0: Not speaking just for you, but thinking about work generally, do you feel that time away from work should be used for decompressing or do you think that's a failing of work culture?
1: I think that I can only really speak for myself because I know that lots of people that I'm close to love work such that they're happy for it to spill over into their personal time and that's okay I think I think that there's always going to be a line at which it which point it becomes unhealthy but I think I think that's okay for me medicine is stressful enough that I do need to have quite clearly defined boundaries that um, that I don't I don't let it spill into my personal
0: time do you think that's possible though being in being a an nhs employee is it possible to leave work at the door or do you actually think that that is most important because your workspace is in the news it's in conversations with your family conversations with friends conversation with strangers who discover you're a doctor and ask you to look at their strange role mm, mm.
1: Do,
0: do you think that plays a part in the need to redisconnect? disconnect
1: Yeah, yeah. I think the thing about the NHS and I think the thing about healthcare is that the NHS, rightly or wrongly, is something that everybody feels that they have ownership over. Because everybody pays taxes and therefore feels that they contribute and uh, can have an opinion on it. And then who hasn't had interactions with healthcare or doctors in some part? It's almost a universal fact of life. So... When you go and talk to somebody who works in shipping, not everybody has encountered that or had personal experience with that. Or so, even understands what it is. Or even understands what it is. So they, the conversation, I think, can be more than inquiring about what that person does. When people talk to me about what I do, they tell me, what they think and what's, what they perceive to be wrong. And I think at the moment it's probably a bad time to talk to me about it because it's, it's a demoralizing time and it's a demoralizing subject. Because, uh, you know, the waiting lists are getting longer. It's under more and more strain. People are feeling more and more entitled and less satisfied with the healthcare they get. So the majority of the stories are bad. And I don't know anybody at work who goes there to do a bad job. So uh, it's tough. And I am getting to the point where I probably have to tell people that I don't wish to talk to them about it anymore. But, yeah, I think that I do strongly compartmentalise. And I think that's the only part of my personal life that I don't have control over because people do choose to talk to me about it, but in terms of the things that happen to me at work and the things I have to deal with, you know, it hasn't come naturally or it hasn't come quickly, but I am able to really switch that part of my, my brain off now. Um,
0: you said that the stories that people tell you about their own experiences of, of healthcare are, are mostly bad stories, and just to add my views about that, I have to say I've only really had good experiences with NHS for myself, but... It's not a story to say, I went to the GP, I told them what my problem was, and they sorted it out. That isn't a story. That's not a story that you'll ever tell. And whilst there are lots of not great stories out there, there's all of the silent experiences of people being dealt with in excellent ways um, and uh, very, very big moving stories of families being supported through the worst times of their life. It is a really difficult time to be an employee of the NHS and a difficult certainly we haven't talked about COVID at all and we won't talk about that today but I do want to hear about your best day as a doctor or a day that you feel most proud of
1: yeah I think that's a tough one I think that uh, probably I have a story but uh, I think that each day when I come out of work and I haven't I think to myself I haven't directly contributed to somebody's demise or (laughs) done something quite clearly wrong that's quite a good day so um i think that probably my best story in all my, be- my my best day uh was a case of um uh, a patient who had a very serious infection and uh through their own health beliefs did not wish to undertake treatment for it which would have been fatal if left uh untreated so I think it probably took me two or three days to deal with this one patient where the rest of the team just had to do everything else for the other patients. And I spent the majority of my time trying to sort this patient out, but having to get the trust lawyers involved and get the psychiatrist to see this patient and eventually uh, it being as something as mundane as his parents coming in to get him to cave, getting him the right treatment and treatment that would prolong and save his life, however difficult, that was an enormous win that you won't ever forget. So,
0: I remember that, um, and yeah, it was, a, it was a, a big ordeal at the time. Uh, I think it's worth adding that uh, you have patients that love you very much, that give you cards and gifts and celebrated, well, it sent you cards for our wedding and that only happens by being a really great doctor that your patients really value and um, have found comfort through so that that certainly is a big win but i think there are lots of your patients that would also share some great stories about their experience with you we're going to finish with one final question um and i'm conscious that perhaps we focused on the challenges a big big time to being a doctor and not and not many of the the upsides but I do want to um, ask you what your what you would what advice you would give to a 17 year old version of you right now thinking about going to medical school what would your what would your advice be
1: do some other things first get some experience it can be in healthcare. it can be in something else it's still a great thing to do and uh, so so valuable but it is defining and it is all consuming and I think that probably having a few more layers to yourself a few more life experiences would just equip you better to go and do the things that you're going to have to do in the process so if you're not in a rush like me like I was then yeah go and go and experience some other things and learn some other things first and then come back to it with a bit more certainty that it is still the right thing for you so yeah that would be my advice
0: are you still in a rush
1: yeah always yeah yeah
0: what are you rushing towards now
1: I don't know (laughs) I don't know I'm always in a rush though I've got to get to the finish line but I don't know what the finish line is but I'll find something um yeah I'm, I'm an impatient person and I uh I like to move on to the next thing I'm not very good at standing still and just uh admiring the view like I want to want to get going and move on to the next thing still yeah.
0: perhaps well, that's why you work so well because I love the view and I force you to look at it Maybe. nice otherwise stand still and you force me to move Absolutely. I say this at the end of every episode, but I'll say it again. I wish we'd had more time to talk. I wish I'd asked more questions. Luckily, I live with Matt, so not only is there a lot I know already, I also had a chance to speak with him since we recorded this, and there are a couple of things that feel important for you to know. Firstly, Matt really wished I'd asked him not about his best day, but about what he enjoys most about his job. So I did ask him. I said, Matt, what do you enjoy most about being a GP? And he said it was the long-standing relationships with patients. Being able to listen to their problems, hear their pain and work out what's going wrong. He says it's very satisfying to find the right treatment. I think that's why the news about his patients this week hit him really hard. That brings me to the second thing I want you to know which is that in 2018 Matt had a small mental health crisis that meant he was off work for a few weeks. He'd fully qualified as a GP the previous spring and been working full-time as a GP for six months when it just became far too much. Going into work every day sparked feelings of panic until one day he visited his own GP and they realised together that he was suffering generalised anxiety and depression, really fuelled by work. By that point he'd worked non-stop for 15 years to reach this goal, to be a fully qualified member of the NHS, and he was looking into a future that felt too difficult to face. There are a few things that triggered it in particular which I won't talk about now, but as you can hear he's come out the other side had some incredible support and did lots of hard work on himself to re-enter work and to go on to be an incredible doctor who his patients really value. As I mentioned in the episode, many of his patients gave us wine and cards for, for our wedding, which was really incredible and makes me so proud to know that he makes such a difference in their lives. What this period of Matt's life told me, though, is something that none of us can think about when we enter the doctor's surgery or a nurse to have a scan, which is this. Our doctors and nurses are trained to diagnose and treat. They may be trained in bedside manner and the best ways to communicate with patients, but they are never trained to process the experience of telling someone they're dying. They are never trained to cope with seeing people die in front of them every day. They are never trained to cope with aggressive patients. They are not given any support for coping with the enormous emotional burden of constantly serving the needs of the general public. To put this into context, to be a therapist or counsellor, as part of the training, you are required to be in therapy yourself which I think is fantastic and necessary, but to be a doctor or a nurse or any of the other incredible roles in the NHS. There's no requirement or even recommendation to seek mental health support as part of your work. So let me finish by making a book recommendation. Whether you're considering being a doctor or you have someone you love who's a doctor, or perhaps you're a doctor, I can't recommend this book enough. It's called Also Human by Caroline Elton. Read it, let me know what you think. This has been a long episode and uh, particularly long prologues and epilogues, but I hope you forgive me and I hope you've enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next time for another journey into Destination Unknown.